0: So Money, episode 1292, Larry Kotlakoff professor of economics at Boston University and author of the forthcoming book, Money Magic, an economist's secrets to more money, less risk, and a better life. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life. Welcome to So Money.
1: If you work a couple more years, maybe three or four more years, you've got three or four more years less to save for. You can consume more in your 30s, in your 40s, in your 50s because you're gonna be working longer. Otherwise, you have to save a ton of money Uh, We're all saving far too little.
0: Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. We are flipping some financial advice on its head today. Our guest is Professor of Economics at Boston University, Lawrence, or Larry, Kotlikoff. He has a new book out, coming out, I should say. It's coming out January 4th. It's called Money Magic, An Economist's Secrets to More Money, Less Risk, and a Better Life. He has unconventional wisdom. Or he'll say, just an economist's wisdom on how to manage our money healthily. He shares his theories on why conventional financial advice is risky, how to make the most of your social security paycheck, why you might want to pay off your mortgage with your IRA. Yeah, that was interesting. And if you're at a professional crossroads, he has insights on the types of professions that might pay more over a lifetime. Some unexpected advice there as well. A little bit more about. Larry Kotlikoff, he is fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He's written over 20 books, hundreds of professional articles and op-eds. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He's often on television and radio. The Economist named him one of the world's 25 most influential economists. And fun fact, Larry ran for president in the 2016 election as a registered write-in candidate. Will he run again? Here's my conversation with Larry Kotlikoff. Larry Kotlikoff, welcome to So Money, and congrats. Your new book is out soon, Money Magic, An Economist's Secrets to More Money, Less Risk, and a Better Life. Welcome. Thanks so much, Farnish. Your secret sauce in this book, the perspective through which you write, which is an economist's perspective. You say this is strategically a better way to think about money, to sort of think about money in economic terms. Tell us why.
1: Well, to begin with, economists don't have a conflict of interest, you know, especially an academic economist like myself. Wall Street approach to financial advice is really a big bait and switch to sell product. It's uh, using a methodology for advice that leads to people signing up to buy high yield mutual funds investments that are very expensive and risky and it was developed over you know the last 70 years to sell product it wasn't developed to give good advice there's a complete disconnect between the two approaches so we think ours is based on economic science which is basically to try and preserve your living standard come up with a plan of spending and saving so you have a smooth living standard per household member figure out ways to safely raise it and then if you're investing at risk show people how your uh, investment behavior and your spending behavior impacts the spread of your living standard through time, the upside, the downside. Everything connects back to what a squirrel would do, which is trying Mm -hmm. to figure out how to get through the winter. It's coming from physiology. We don't want to consume everything at one time. We don't want to consume all the ice cream we're ever going to eat today. We'll get sick, right? We want to have ice cream through time, so that's what is underlying the economics approach: is physiology, something very physical. The other approach is just made out of thin air. Well, I mean, uh, to sell just product. to take
0: the side of the financial planner. I'm not a financial planner, but you know, certified financial planners (CFPs). They are your fiduciary. They must disclose if they're going to sell you a product for retirement, at least towards retirement, whether that's insurance or a stock that they're going to get commission on. That's why we always say you have to ask for disclosures. Make sure you understand what their incentives are. And I think you know, with any fina- a good financial planner, that first meeting is understanding not just what you want to do, but why. Which I know is also part of the economist formula, sort of understanding why you want to do certain things um, so that you can more purposefully create a plan for yourself. Where's the error in that?
1: So let me be clear. I'm not trying to criticize the financial planners because every financial planner I know, and maybe I just don't know them all, but is honest. They're trying to to help people in a sincere way. They're not just out for a buck. They're not trying to con people, but they're, they're stuck with a methodology that they were trained on, which we think is giving the wrong answers. They have to use these tools. In many cases, if they're working for a, a major financial planning company, they're forced, they're not allowed to use uh, appropriate tools in our view. So what they do is they you know, use the tools they have and then they use their common sense and they get back mm-hmm. to the economics approach indirectly. My beef is not with the financial planners per se, it's with the methodologies they're using, but I I think they're adjusting what they're doing to make sure they give good advice in the end, the best possible, that they can give given these crappy tools.
0: As we know, I mean, behavioral economics is a huge field of, of science that more recently has concluded that managing your money wisely, it is, of course, about calculations and numbers. But a lot of it is harnessing your own Tendencies, you're having the right mindset. Uh, where does that play into your approach to advising people about money?
1: So I'm an economist, and I'm, you know, we, uh, behavioral economics is a big part of economics these days. It's not a big part of what I think is useful because I think our job as economists is not just to study people's mistakes. Everybody's going to make mistakes, given how complicated this problem is. You, you know, if you just think about when to retire. It's going to affect your 401k contributions. It's going to affect your taxes. It's going to affect your Social Security benefits. It's going to affect your IRMA, you know, your Medicare Part B premiums. It, there's so many interconnected parts here, your life insurance needs. Now, when we make these mistakes, then economists say, well, people are not, don't have self-control. They're financially illiterate. We start blaming it on the people as opposed to the saying what we need to do is develop software and or just, you know, like write a book that says what to do, you know, get prescribe the right economics medicine as opposed to just saying people have problems.
0: Yes. And I, w- I want to get back to your book because it has so much advice and and frankly, some contrarian advice, or at least advice we're not used to hearing everything from how to choose a career to maybe even how to get out of debt, which is something I've never heard. You say, uh, smarter to cash out your IRA to pay off your mortgage. Can you explain that to me and how it works well?
1: Well, yeah, this is just one example of what I would call a financial shocker. It's not really a shocker to people in finance as much as it is to the public. If you've got a 401k, you may have an invested in the stock market. If I Let's say an IRA. You've retired. You've got a tr- traditional IRA. So I'm coming to you and saying, look, you should think about taking out that money, uh, paying taxes on it, paying off your mortgage. Maybe you're paying a mortgage at three and a half percent. The long-term uh, Treasury bond rate is two percent. There's a one and a half percent spread. And you say to me, "Well, that's crazy, Larry, because I'm making six and a half percent after inflation in the stock market. That's been the historic return. All these projections of thirty-year holding periods says the stock market always does great in the long run. The stocks are safe in the long run. But we economists have studied this stock are not safe in the long run they're random walks there's nothing that guarantees that if it goes down today it'll go down tomorrow so there's lots of risk with the stocks and and the fact that uh long-term treasuries are yielding such a low return at the same time stocks on average not for sure on average are yielding such a high return means there's a big risk premium it means there's a lot of risk with the stock market that's why people are are willing to invest so once you risk adjust the stock return in your ira now you're comparing apples to, to, to apples. Now you're comparing a two percent return investment with a three and a half percent mortgage, and that differential can add up to a lot of money if you've got a big mortgage and you have to pay for many years. So I, you know, I've run cases that shows you can make fifty, a hundred thousand dollars in increased lifetime spending by doing this simple arbitrage. So let me put it another way. For, for suppose you're sixty-three, you just retired. You have a mortgage you have a traditional ira and suppose you do what i said you cashed out your ira and paid off that debt now you're sitting here with less money in the stock you took the money out of the stock market you cashed out you got no mortgage and you have less money in your ira would you turn around would you willingly turn around and go borrow on your house to put money in the stock market no so <laughs> you therefore can't think that you're in the right position to have a mortgage and money in the stock market. Because if you undid that, which you can do, you wouldn't want to undo it again, (laughs) go back to where you were, Uh, because you would intuitively realize that you've leveraged yourself to, invest your risk. And what we want to do is have really a floor to our living standard. I'm not saying never invest in the stock market. I'm saying I talk in the book about upside investing, which is a way of having a floor to your living standard and just experiencing upside risk by investing in the market. Because what you do under this strategy is never spend out of your risky assets until you've converted them into safe assets like inflation index bonds. So use those bonds to get a floor to your living standard. And this does come back to behavioral finance. If people are very concerned about the down, if they form a habit, they don't want to have their living standard drop They're, They have this living lifestyle that is their habit and uh, they don't want to see that decline. So it's it's not irrational to want to have the same living standard in the future that you have in the past, but you also want to be in the market to some extent. You want to have that upside
0: Sticking with retirement, Larry, you also talk in the book about the strategy of retiring two years later than maybe you had originally planned, which I think a lot of us these days, you know, retirement is a moving target. But what, why do the two years can actually reap dividends and lower your average lifetime tax bracket. Talk a little bit about some of your advice for how to optimize financial planning in retirement.
1: Yeah. I mean, choosing to retire is like deciding to take the longest vacation you'll ever take. So we have to think about it as, for many people, financial suicide, because they could live to 100. My mom passed away in 98. My co-author's mom, uh, mother-in-law just died in 96. So you could end up retired longer than you work. So it's a very dangerous decision. That's why I say financial suicide for a lot of people. It's it's. I'm trying to scare people. So Obviously, for some people, well-endowed, it's just the right thing to do, okay? Or if you have a, you know, if you've got pancreatic cancer, you want to retire. Enjoy the rest of your days. But if you work a couple more years, maybe three or four more years, you've got three or more, four more years less to save for. You can consume more in your 30s, in your 40s, in your 50s because you're going to be working longer. Otherwise, you have to save a ton of money. Uh, we're all saving far too little. Every American, even me, I'm, I have this great job. I'm a professor. I've got tenure. I'm planning on retiring at 80. I mean, really, that's because I'm I'm still terrified about outliving out my money. That's one of our major risks. When we work longer, we potentially raise our Social Security benefits. We delay taking Social Security, which is probably the smartest financial move we can make if we do wait to take a retirement benefit. Probably 85% of us should be waiting till 70 to take our Social Security retirement benefit. Only 6% at most are doing that. The, the benefit at retirement at 70 is 76% higher than it is at 62. That's one of the things I push in the book. We really have to think carefully about maximizing our lifetime Social Security benefits because it's, for almost everybody, it's our largest or second largest financial asset. So many things are connected to when we retire If we retire later, like at 67, then there's two years of we're not paying Medicare Part B premiums. We're getting health insurance from our employer. It's probably better insurance. We don't have to pay the major medical bills. You know, I could talk for about the the value of of working longer. And I know not everybody can. I know not everybody has tenure. I know people have physical ailments. I I just had (laughs) rotator cuff surgery and I'm getting tendonitis from typing and using, and you know, I know the problems, you know, just from being an academic. So I'm not oblivious to this, but there are so many jobs out there where you can, you know, just use your voice and work at home, stay in the market.
0: Well, sticking with careers, Larry, maybe we could go back and help those of us who are maybe far away from retirement, but at a crossroads professionally and thinking about what we want to do with our lives and how to make that money. You, again, offer some unique advice in your book, which is to choose well, this isn't the unique part. Obviously, we want to maximize our lifetime earnings, but to do this, you give a different kind of a pro strategy, which is maybe picking up a plunger instead of a stethoscope. Are you suggesting that there's a better uh, financial future for blue-collar workers than, than doctors?
1: Oh, definitely. There's a lot of, uh, I mean, radiologists are likely to be completely automated out of, the, out of business uh, in a few years because the... Um, Artificial intelligence can read these radiographs, uh, the x-rays, much better, much more accurately than the radiologist. So, and medicine's, you know, a long haul. You have to be, I mean, I think doctors are just heroic people, nurses. These are the biggest heroes in the, in the world, lovely people. But, you know, you have to be really dedicated because you've got four years of college, four-year medical school, uh, a couple years of internship and residency for maybe one or two years. You finally get out, you start earning money, and if you're a GP, it's not that much, but you're now going to be in a high tax bracket. You're going to be treated as if you had, you're had you a super high earner for your whole life. A lifetime of plumbing, uh, not going to college, can produce more money than a lifetime of being a GP and a lifetime of getting an MA, a BA in, in education. Here you are 33, and you're thinking, should I go back and spend a couple of years getting an MA? Turns out that may not pay off. Yes, you get a higher salary, but you give up a couple of years of earnings and you have to maybe take out student loans at a very high rate just to cover yourself for a couple of years. I give some very simple arithmetic ways of figuring out whether these investments make sense. And I also point out that what you want to look for is a career that everybody else hates and that you love. And if you employ yourself, you can't get fired. You can't have a crappy boss. You can't be sexually harassed. You can't be discriminated against. So I also talk about the advantages of self-employment.
0: The fact that it costs a doctor half a million dollars to get educated is... I would say is wrong, and there are people that are that, that have more power to control that. You know, there's policy. There's student loan market is out of whack, and I, I wonder, you know, as somebody who ran in the 2016 presidential election as a write-in candidate, what kinds of policies would you like to see so that we can make these life decisions uh, without feeling like we have to arbitrage the system because we're set up for failure. You know, things are just too expensive inflation, all of that, right?
1: I've been on to this expropriation of your generation for my entire career because we have been spending 70 years taking from young people, giving to old people, running a Ponzi scheme systematically through changing the tax structure, through Social Security. It's got a $59 trillion unfunded liability that we're leaving on your heads. Uh, We've got a a government debt that's gone from 35% of GDP to 100% since 2008. I mean, everywhere you look, Ah uh, we have uh, bankrupted our kids uh, to our our benefit. So if I were, and this is one of the things i I pointed out in, in this uh, campaign, which didn't get too far, but i I felt that it was important for to to specify what economists felt we should do, at least and I talked to a lot of economists and on education, I would have the uh, say that people kids should be able to do borrow at the government borrowing rate, which is currently like two percent. Not the five percent rate that um, you have to borrow at if you get a, a a Stanford loan, for example, in college. And you should be able to default on it as well. If you can't make a living or become disabled, you should be able to get out from under that student loan, just like a, reg, a regular um, you know business loan. You should be able to go bankrupt. Whereas here, you can't can't discharge. They they'll take your student loan out of your Social Security check if you're 85. They'll do it. I mean, it's just terrible the way we're treating young people across the board. And I'm not saying this to sell my book. (laughs) You know, you go back in my record, look at go to Kotlikoff.net, you'll see these these books. I'm saying the same thing for decades about before I had kids, after I had kids, I think it's just disgraceful. And I developed with Alan Auerbach and uh, Jagdish Gokhale, another economist, something called generational accounting, which is a, a method for understanding the Precise degree to which we're screwing your generation, and I've t- been trying to get the government to actually make these calculations on an annual basis it hasn't happened. But we, I think, my our work has influenced the European Union to put together something called the S two calcul- uh, indicator, and they do this calculation every three years. It's called the fiscal sustainability uh, report. And they show how bad their situation is. And it's, there's no country for which it's so bad as the U.S. The U.S. Is, has really got the, the award for expropriating the, the young. So there's lots of things we can do to fix this country. But the two parties are not focused on that. They're focused on making the, the older people better off because the older people on Election Day have nothing to do but to go vote. That's why they are giving all the money to the old people. They want to get their votes. I was just I was too young to run last time. If we can convince my wife to let me run and i'm 70 so I'm go.
0: do you have aspirations for real to to run i
1: would love president because there's not a single economist in Congress there's 535 members i think not a single one has a phd we economists could fix the country overnight
0: how do you fundraise when you're trying to get a phd i mean that's the problem larry this being a politician in this country is is all about trying to raise money, unfortunately, uh, and not having enough time on the issues. But that's another show. That's another show. We'd love to have you back if and when that uh, happens. But even before then, you have so many interesting ideas. Always great to invite fresh perspectives on this show, especially as we emerge into a new year. Larry Kotlikoff, professor of economics at Boston University and author of Money Magic out January 4th. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks to Larry for joining us. His book out January 4th is called Money Magic. You can learn more about Larry at Kotlikoff.net. We'll put that link on our website. You can text me now. Did you know this? I have a text messaging service. It's a great way to send in your questions for our Friday episodes or for the new YouTube channel that we just launched at CNET at youtube.com slash CNETmoney. The number, if you want to put that in your phone right now, it's a free number. 415-942-5002. 415-942-5002. Send me your questions there. I'll text you back on the go and it might make the show. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. See you back here on Friday for Ask Farnoosh. I hope your day is so money.